3: You cannot afford to take your cue from Bob Dylan because you do need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Yep, this is not a subterranean homesick blues moment. On a record high day where the Dow gained 123 points, S&P dipped 0.04%, and the Nasdaq declined 0.47%, stocks are constantly being buffeted by headwinds and tailwinds. You know what? It's gotten hard to discern which is which. More importantly, you need to be able to tell the difference between a brief shower with half an inch of rainfall and a genuine downpour. Every day we get a new weather forecast and if you dismiss it, well, you know what? You're gonna be ending up in a monsoon without a poncho. Take today. This morning, PepsiCo reported a quarter that was widely panned. Because the company cut its forecast by a nickel? But if you summon the weatherman, you'll find out that there was a headwind, the strong dollar, which is a big and uncontrollable deal for an international company like this one. When PepsiCo originally made its forecast, they didn't include a much stronger greenback, something that's turned into a huge headwind. But is it really their fault? When I spoke with Hugh Johnson, the CFO, this morning, he assured me that the problem was really all about the dollar. And that's a purely cyclical headwind. Maybe it's temporary. Someday the dollar will go back down into this big spike it just had. That's not what many investors are really concerned about. What they're concerned about is a long-term secular headwind related to health worries, which they didn't get. In other words, it's not that millennials are avoiding sugary drinks and salty snacks. It was just the dollar. And that's not in PepsiCo's purview. It's reversible. When I pressed Johnson on what else might be holding back PepsiCo's numbers, he said the aluminum costs had gone up for cans, transportation costs have risen thanks to higher wages as well as new safety regulations. But then he added that PepsiCo is able to raise prices in order to pass those costs on to the consumer, especially since Coca-Cola just raised prices on its soda over the summer. So there's no need to worry about these cyclical headwinds. We know that aluminum costs have been elevated by fiat thanks to the president's tariffs but you told me not to fret because PepsiCo can shift to plastic. He also said the transport costs are cyclical, that the rewards for being a truck driver today have never been greater. So while the average truck driver is 49 years old right now, he expects more workers to be drawn to the profession because of that high price, which will push those costs back down. Now, I wasn't buying it. I question whether that's a secular headwind, because younger people might fear that once they learn how to drive a truck, autonomous driving will take over. He admitted that could be a real negative. But then again, once we have self-driving vehicles, we won't need to worry about labor costs. I didn't get to ask him about the switch from aluminum because we know there's a secular headwind against plastic packaging. Millennials don't want to add to the island of bottles the size of Antarctica floating in the Pacific. You know what? When I pondered it, I came away thinking that PepsiCo lacks real tailwinds but that retiring CEO Inger Nui had correctly combated the headwinds with ingenuity, with grit, smarts, and perseverance. I like it after today's pullback. General Electric, on the other hand, hand, has both headwinds and tailwinds within the same roof. Later tonight, I'm going to give you my take on why John Flannery was really fired after just 13 months on the job. But GE is unique in that the company put itself in the path of its headwinds. That's right. It was their fault. The company put big money into fossil fuels, doubling down on them as the price of oil began to collapse a few years ago. At the same time, the company virtually stopped investing in two of its best businesses with fabulous tailwinds healthcare equipment and aerospace. There's endless demand for healthcare equipment that can save lives and save the system money. That's what GE is going for. That's why Abbott Labs, Illumina, Intuitive Surgical, Medtronic, and dozens of other stocks in the cohort have been such great performers and are in massive bull market mode. And as for aerospace, well, the tailwinds are so strong that Boeing just hit another all-time high today, despite the fact that they, they could be one of the biggest losers if the trade war with China continues. Doesn't matter. There's so much demand for aircraft worldwide that the Chinese would have to be insane to cancel their orders. The wait list for new planes can be up to 20 years. As people in the developing world become wealthier, more and more of them can afford to fly, creating one of the greatest secular growth themes of our entire era. That's why General Electric so desperately needs a weatherman. Hopefully, Larry Culp, the new CEO, late of Danaher, knows which way the wind blows. What else? Right now, we're very close to full employment here in the United States with no sign of any slowing. The Federal Reserve doesn't mind full employment, but when the economy's this hot, They start worrying about runaway wage growth because it can be a major driver of inflation. That's why the Fed's been tightening. They want to head off the cyclical tailwinds of higher salaries. I know it sounds crazy that regular people making more money is considered bad news for the economy. But, hey, I don't make the rules. The thing is, higher salaries may be a secular headwind for the stock market. Today, Amazon raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour, which is much higher than many of the brick-and-mortar outfits. Yeah, immediately, those retail stocks that didn't pay it? Well, let me just say, hammered. Does this mean the Fed needs to tighten even more aggressively? We'll find out on Friday when we get the Labor Department's non-farm payroll report. Aggregate wage growth has been pretty anemic for ages, in part because of automation. And in part, as I just told you, because the Fed has spent decades actively trying to prevent higher wages. Now, this is the classic case where what's good for you as an investor may be bad for you as someone who works for a living. In other words, wage inflation is a tailwind that becomes a headwind when it gets too strong and forces the Fed to take action. Right now, the headwinds tend to be more visible than the tailwinds. So then it brings the larger question. How can the stock market keep going up if the headwinds are so visible and bad? Simple. we got two colossal tailwinds, two hugely bullish tailwinds. One is cyclical, meaning it's ephemeral, and one is secular meaning it's going to go on for a long time. And these are hard to see. But I think they're responsible for much of the market's levitation. First, there's a cyclical boom in hiring. When jobs get created, more people can afford to put money away. So they save and they save, in part by investing in the stock market. As long as employment continues to grow, this process will keep playing out. And it's usually positive for stocks. So you don't need to pull down your savings when you've got a job and you're making more money. Second. There's a gorgeous secular tailwind, a stock shortage caused by endless mergers and acquisitions, not to mention a torrent of corporate buybacks. This may be the most important theme that you never hear about unless you watch the show. There's literally not enough stock to go around. The stock market is a market first and foremost. You tighten up supply, prices are indeed going to go higher. Now, just like the weather, the market is subject to change. Any one of these cyclical tailwinds can become secular headwinds. The ascendance of the web has made online advertising one of the greatest secular tailwinds of our day. But it's also been a vicious headwind to every other form of advertising. But that might not mean a thing to, say, Facebook, which has squandered so much goodwill with its endless scandals. The bottom line, you certainly need more than a weatherman to pick stocks. But it sure helps to know which way the wind blows before you pull the trigger. Let's go to James in California. James. Well, James. It's James calling from sunny San Diego. Oh, nice to have you on the show. Went San Diego last year, loved it. How can I help? Well, um, now that uh, 10 cents Music Division filed for its US IPO, uh, is one of your favorite subscription businesses, Spotify, a buy, a sell, or a hold? Now I think you hold it. Uh, maybe you wait for the 10 cents Music deal to price. Stock comes down, and then you pull the trigger. Let's go to Paul in Florida, Paul. Hey, Jim.
1: Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I got a question for you about Twitter. I really I really respect your opinion. And um, basically Twitter, with it being in the politics and whatever's going on with it right now, it's uh,
3: you know, I took I'm taking a hit on it. And right. I, I was curious what your opinion is. Um, bought it at forty five. Now it's at what? Well, remember, we today, don't care where stock has come from. We care where it's going to. Now, the problem with Twitter, as I mentioned, squawk on the street, is that they keep, you know, they've they've had a series of reversals in terms of the number of people who look at it. They've been cleaning up the accounts. Until they're finished the cleanup, I think the stock's going to remain under pressure. Why don't we go to Amy in Nevada, please? Amy. Jim, how are you? I am good, Amy. How about you? I'm great. I'm calling actually today to a couple of things. I want to thank you for all your help. Thank you. And I want to say, yeah, I want to say
2: that talking to you today would be the highlight of my day. I love your show.
3: Uh, You're very kind. I was
2: listening to it. Yes, I mean, you make trading entertaining.
0: uh,
3: Look, I want to make it entertaining. I want investing to be interesting. That way you'll do the work and be a better investor just in case when I'm not here sometimes. So let me help. What's up? Yes. Well, my question today is about ADT. A couple of weeks ago, I got it after I heard about the integration with Amazon Alexa. I had high hopes for this stock, but
2: then it's plummeting only, what, about 10% today or so. So, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think I should... Hold on to that. Get some
3: well, more. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the stock. Why? I mean, it was a busted deal. It's been going down. There are many people who want to be in that business. So my take is uh, I would cut my losses. I don't think there's a lot of upside to ADT, one of the worst IPOs of the season. All right, I don't say it often, but Bob Dylan got it wrong. We do need a weatherman. Tailwinds turn into headwinds, and you need to figure out which is which before you pull the trigger. Oh man, Bunny, tonight. I've got a to-do list for Larry Colt to get GE back in action. I'll tell you which boxes he needs to tick off. Then we spent last week in San Francisco talking about the turbocharged cloud players, most of which were down today. But how are the seven-ductor stocks varying? I'm going off the charts to find out. And Paychex has been a long-term winner for this show. And with a strong economy, the stock should be soaring. What is it saying about the economy? I'm talking with the CEO. So stay with
1: Kramer.
3: Why did General Electric fire now former CEO John Flannery after just 13 months on the job? I keep hearing that it was about speed. He wasn't turning the business around quickly enough. But it wasn't about speed. It was about the charges, the unexpected charges that, quite frankly, shouldn't have been unexpected. When Flannery inherited GE, I called for the financial equivalent of a truth and reconciliation commission to deal with the mistakes of his predecessor, Jeff Immel. I said he needed to uproot ML's errors, root and branch. It was an open secret that the problems at G were much more all-encompassing than Imel had ever admitted. All you had to do was read the research. If you simply examine the reports from Steve Tusa, say, at J.P. Morgan, it was easy to see how the company's buy-high-sell-low philosophy had caused some horrific problems. Why not take that guy seriously? How much business did J.P. Morgan forego because of Tusa's thoughtful negative analysis? Let's take long-term care. For ages, this business was an asterisk on GE's ridiculously opaque financials. The company had offloaded insurance to Genworth, but it kept the liabilities to these stubborn policies where middle-aged people paid a pittance for long-term care during a period when life expectancies were a heck of a lot lower and in-home health care was much, much cheaper. I explained this to GE both before and after the transition, Simply because my late father had one of these policies, and for a very small amount of money, he was able to have live-in health care for a very long time. If you priced it out, his policy was worth about 20 times what he paid each year. How many smart people took this stuff? What GE did here was like the movie Poltergeist, where the housing development moved the gravestones, but they kept the bodies. And look, it's not like you needed an anecdotal experience to tell this was a problem. Life and AI- AIG suffered from the same woes. Yet I don't think that Imel or even Flannery really understood the obvious consequences of writing these nefarious policies, at least for the issuer. That's why the $21.2 billion charge for the asterisk was so impossible to fathom. A Financial Truth and Reconciliation Commission would have seen that coming. Then there's the awesome energy business. <laughs> which GE bought for $13.5 billion, right near the peak in energy. And since this is a French company, it's nearly impossible to lay anyone off. Inmel called it, and I quote, a significant step in GE's transformation, end quote, except it was a transformation toward an industry that was vanishing before his eyes in the time it took to close the deal. Flannery was involved in this transaction, too, so it was hard for him to admit that much of the deal needed to be written down by the time it closed. I've seen these kinds of write-downs, but really only as a result of fraud, not ridiculously bad business judgment. Yet, it was ridiculously bad business judgment that caused this. Hey, fraud would have been better. Instead of building up aerospace or healthcare, two terrific businesses, he doubled down on an industry that was in secular decline, thanks to the rise of alternative energy. No shock. He did the same with oil and gas, doubling down when the price of crude ran to $100 a barrel. So when Flannery didn't immediately take the big charge, the one that's now necessary, and he surprised the board after he said there would be no more surprises, he couldn't keep his job. Once again, it wasn't the speed. It was the fact that he didn't see the charges coming. Why did all this happen? I have a theory. Because American business has a strange aversion to looking at what actually went wrong in the past, actually learning from history. It's almost considered a sin to go back and examine a predecessor's mistakes if you're coming from the same organization. Think of it as kind of a mafia style code of silence. But Larry Culp, the new CEO, is not from within the organization. He's from Danner, So he's free to take all the charges GE needs. And, of course, he can cut the dividends, And maybe he can do a 100 million share secondary offering to help fix the balance sheet. Set, 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 set. That was almost impossible for someone from the inside to do. Kulp doesn't have that problem, which is why people are starting to upgrade the stock. In short, Flannery got fired because the board was in the dark, clueless as to how bad things really were because no one seriously examined the ML era. Maybe they didn't want to hurt Jeff's feelings. It's either that or this stuff was really well hidden. And we know it wasn't. All you had to do was read the research. If I were a the first thing i do is hire Steve Tusa from J.P. Morgan. i put him on the board. You want no more surprises? That's the move to make. Controversial? Yes. Correct? Absolutely. Let's go to Tom in California, please, Tom.
1: Hey, Jimbo, how are you doing?
3: I am doing well. How about you?
1: Good, good. Uh, Reliance Steel, ticker RS. I know they made a number of acquisitions lately and they continue to do so. There's a one year of 98 on it. They made it up to 96 in June, but now it's dropped off about the mid 80s. Been hovering there for a while. Any of your thoughts, please?
3: I'm not crazy about most of the steel stocks. Uh, We had a note today, downgraded letter X, U.S. Steel, talking about how hot rolled steel prices have uh, actually been going down. It looks like the Incredibly, the tariffs are having the wrong effect on pricing. Uh, and I. while Reliance has, of course, got a lot of business, you know, it's got a sales business, I just don't want to put any more money into the steel business. All right, one of the nails in the coffin for GE was that their board was largely in the dark. One way to remedy that, I would put JP Morgan analyst Steve Tuso on the board. At least he can see what a lot of other people apparently can't. All right, much more Mad Moneyhead. Semis are inside of every smartphone, but which one should be inside of your portfolio? I'm going off the charts to find out. Then my exclusive with the company, paychecks With the jobs number set for Friday, where does the company stand now? I'm talking with the CEO after earnings. And was the obituary written for the off-price retailers too soon? I'm giving you my take. So stay with Kramer.
0: Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills.
3: We spent all last week in San Francisco talking about the cloud stocks with turbocharged growth. But what about the semiconductor industry, the meat and potatoes of the tech sector? Lately, the chip stocks have become a lot more inconsistent. Some big winners, some big losers, leaving the broader group kind of... Let's say directionless. So tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of Carolyn Broden. She's that brilliant technician who runs the FibonacciQueen.com website, also happens to be one of my colleagues at RealMoney.com. We're going to get a better read on the semiconductor space, which is really intriguing a lot of people. Broden has a very good track record when it comes to technology in general. At the end of April, she made a really bold call that the NASDAQ 100, the tech-heavy index composed of 100 largest non-financial stocks in the NASDAQ composite, was ready to roar higher. Back then, the NAS was at 6,500. And Broden used her methodology to come up with some price targets. She told us the index could easily be headed for 7,420 as long as it held above its recent lows. I got to tell you, she completely nailed it. We've now cleared that level with the NASDAQ 100 at 7,628. And I've got to tell you, this is, uh, well, she got her next upside at 7,719. That's some target, huh? In short, Broden called a 17% move in not a stock, but in an index, and it took less than six months to play out. I think that's very impressive. So why don't we use that same methodology to discern what's happening in the major semiconductor names. Look at NVIDIA, Intel, Texas Instruments, and Broadcom. Why don't we start with the daily chart of NVIDIA? It's a stock I like so much that I renamed a dog after it. Now, the maker of powerful chips for computer graphics and the data center has seen its stock really roar of late. broden has been a big fan of buying pullbacks in NVIDIA because the stock always seems to make a comeback. I mean, look at this. Buy, buy, buy. I mean, it's really pretty incredible, isn't it? Remember, she likes to measure past swings in a security and then run them through the prism of Fibonacci ratios. It's a series of numbers discovered by Leonardo Fibonacci. He's the medieval godfather of mathematics. That gets brought in a series of key levels where a stock is likely to pivot or change its trajectory. And when she starts seeing these levels cluster together, it often means a reversal is at hand. So when NVIDIA pulled back to the high 250s a little over a week ago, there were seven different Fibonacci price relationships telling her that the stock would soon bottom and bounce. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Boom! And by the way, when it was right here, everyone else was running for the hills. Believe me, it was really scary. Now that Nvidia's rallied nearly thirty dollars in just eight days, what do we do with it? Broden says that if you're not already in this one, you're probably a little late to the party. Stock briefly hit her near-term upside target at two ninety-two yesterday, and while she could see it rallying another ten bucks or even eleven bucks from here, that's not a lot of upside. As much as I love Nvidia's business, you're chasing it if you buy the stock up here, and we hate to chase on mad money, which is why we let a little go last week for the Charitable Trust, which you can follow by joining the ActionLordsplus.com club. It was earlier this week, I'm sorry. As we explained, it was just up too much in a shorter period of time. In other words, we just thought that this was just too much of a rocket, okay? I think that her charts say the same thing. All right, next up, how about the weekly chart of a stock that led this whole market today, Intel, which surged 3.5%, but it's still pretty much of a laggard compared to the group. Over the weekend, Broden told me that Intel could be ready to roar. Oh, I just wish we'd run this segment on Monday because you might have seen today's rally coming. But, well, what can you do? So what is going on here? It's all about symmetry, a concept that helped recall the bottom in the NASDAQ 100 back in April. The idea here is that large swings in the same stock tend to be similar in size. The last time Intel had a brutal decline was in 2014. So look back here, okay? 2014, 2015. Stock shed, keep this number in mind, 13. 13 points, that is, not percentage. So when Intel once again tumbled $13 and change from its peak in June to its 12th last month, it gave Broden the idea that the stock might be ready to bottom. I know, it's, it, it just sounds like really simplistic, right? Uh, but it's real, and it's surprising how often it works out. She's taught us a lot here. At the same time, she also spotted a confluence of Fibonacci relationships between 42 and 44, which gave the company's stock a nice level of support. Sure enough, now Intel's roaring, it's already back up to $48 and change. How high can it go? Based on her methodology, Broden says Intel's about to clear another important hurdle. So if this stock can get above 49, she thinks it could be smooth sailing to $61.28. But on the other hand, you know how this works. If Intel falls below her floor of support around 42.50, all bets are off. And she thinks it could go lower. But for now, she thinks the bullish scenario is like is looking a lot more likely. Uh, if they get their chips in time, remember, that's been, been a manufacturing glitz, and she's going to be right on that, but uh, we don't know for the answer. All right, now let's take a look at one that has been a slow and steady wins the race. Let's look at Texas Instruments, TXN. All right, here's another example of symmetry. The stock fell $16.23, okay, from its June highs to its lows last month before rebounding pretty dramatically over the last three weeks. Well, guess what? The last time tax adjustments really got hit in the April lows, it was at $16.16 decline. Of years ago, we saw another $16 decline. If it happens again, don't be surprised if the stock reverses after a similar fall. I know it seems silly. If you tried to put this in a screenplay about Wall Street, they'd laugh you out of the room. What can I say? Truth is dumber than fiction. So where does Broden think Texas Instruments might be headed? As long as the stock holds above the 102-day intraday low from September 12th, she sees the stock going higher. She thinks it could go from 108 to 122, but she'd be a lot more confident if the stock could rally a few more points to 112, clearing an important ceiling of resistance. Okay. And again, if Texas Instruments breaks down below the floor support of 101 to 102, well, she thinks it could fall into 94. At the moment, though, the futures looking good for Texas. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think it's more likely it goes up the quarter. Well, actually, the year has been quite good for the company. Finally, there's Broadcom. Wow, controversial, but it's a longtime uh, Kramer fave. And it's run by the great Hock Tan we've had on uh, Squawk on the Street. Now, this stock has already rallied a quick 50 bucks from its lows. That's where they instituted a gigantic buyback after they failed to get the uh, acquisition of Qualcomm. Given that the last big run in Broadcom lasted for 54 points, well, she's feeling a little wary here. There's a ceiling of resistance at $251. It's up, up about three bucks, But if the stock can clear that level, she thinks it could potentially be, uh, well, let's just say a lot more upside. Specifically, Broden thinks this stock could run to $309 before it hits another ceiling. Ideally, though, she'd really like to buy this one on a pullback. Stocks had an epic run from its bottom. The bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Carolyn Broden, suggest that the neglected old-school semiconductor kingpins like Intel and Texas Instruments could be ready to roar, while some of the newer, faster-growing names like Broadcom and NVIDIA might need to take some time to digest their gains before they resume their long march hire. I'm with her, but of course, for fundamental reasons. Let's go to John in Illinois. John. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on your show. Of course.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering about a company called ST Microelectronics, a uh, <sighs> semiconductor based out of Switzerland. They make these chips called MEMS, Microelectro right. uh, Mechanical Systems used for the Internet of Things. Um, just wonder what your take is on it. You know, no about real edge, 24. to tell you the
3: truth, John. Uh, I just think that it's neither here nor there, and I am not as sanguine about a lot of the semiconductor stocks as other people. I'm even quite concerned, frankly, about the breakdown in AMD today, which is really levered to the fact that people feel Intel is uh, not going to have a problem getting out its chips, and they compete directly with AMD. All right, the charts are telling the Fib Queen that some of the old standbys, like Intel and Texas Instruments, could still be higher, while the fast-growing Broadcom and NVIDIA may be in for a breather. As I told the club, I agree on NVIDIA. Much more Mad Money had including my exclusive with the CEO of Paychex Blowout Quarter. What does one of the largest payroll operators have to say about the current economic environment? Then, it's a bright and booming sector within retail but one analyst doesn't seem to think so. I'll tell you what to make of the death of the off-price retailer thesis. An order calls rapid-fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
1: Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Did you give me a pay cut? Did did, Did Squawk on the Street just
3: give me a pay cut? I heard they money cut my pay. I mean, that's what they're like yep. out there.
0: It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
3: On Friday morning, we get the Labor Department's all-important non-farm payroll report, and that number could set the tone for the entire month. That's what's been happening. Fortunately, we can get an early read on the employment picture by checking in with the payroll processors. Companies like Paychex, the second-largest payroll processor in America, with a sidelining human resources outsourcing that's actually becoming their main business. And the good news is companies like Paychex, they know things. Not only do they benefit from stronger hiring, they also instantly become more profitable every time the Fed raises interest rates. That's because Paychex collects interest on what's known as the float, The money they're sitting on while they wait for you to cash your check. Now, Paychex just reported this morning and they delivered a nice top and bottom line beat. Management reiterating their full year forecast. Stock rallied 1.44%. After spending the beginning of the year in the doldrums, this thing's really been roaring of late. Could have more room to run? Let's check in with Marty Musi. He's the president and CEO of Paychex. Learn more about the quarter, where his company's headed. Marty, welcome back to Mad Money.
1: Thanks, Jim. It's good to be here.
3: Marty, I got to tell you, I thought everything came together this quarter. You've got 15 holds, one sell, and only one buy. I think they're all going to be converted because you got to tell people about all the suite that you put together that I think is now complete and is making it so that you are much more than just a payroll processor.
1: Well, I agree, Jim. It's really has come together. This has been a solid first quarter. 9% top-line revenue, 16% on net income, certainly benefiting from tax reform as well. And we've put a great suite of products together that not only is payroll, but it's really an HR solution for small and mid-sized businesses.
3: You also mentioned uh, in the middle of your conference call that we're experiencing a strong growth in worksite employees that continue in the first quarter. So that's certainly good news for the economy and for paychecks.
1: It really is. This is not only new sales, but it's, it's growth in worksite employees from our existing clients in the PEO business, which is really HR outsourcing, where we help them with insurances as well as total HR support. And it's growing double-digit and really probably mid-single, uh, mid-double-digit uh, growth is what we're seeing there.
3: Well, what was the inflection point? Because that really is much stronger. i read a bunch of annual supports. I don't think people recognize that you would be at some sort of fulcrum where it really is starting getting some leverage.
1: Well, we started getting some uh, really some good momentum the last half of last year. We put a number of new sales uh, initiatives in place. We we expanded our marketing spend given the tax reform money. We used some of that money to reinvest in product development to accelerate a few products that we were working on coming up with the next year. And when you put it all together, including our new learning management system, which gives training to our small and mid-sized businesses, pre-populated and their own, you really have a very strong HR outsource product. And, that's what's helping these businesses grow
3: you also credited we were out at salesforce you said that salesforce helped and also your uh virtual team inside i mean so you're really making some efforts to data mine companies and figure out how best to give them the analytics to help them
1: well we are we using salesforce we're having the sales reps really in, put a lot of data into salesforce which we're then using to produce data analytics that is helping us target prospects client referrals, CPA referrals. We're getting much more defined in the way we go at clients and, uh, and be able to bring them the exact right value based on what they need. And we know all of their history, all of their interactions with us, all of that can be pulled together with data analytics now. And you're right, the, a lot of selling is happening telephonically now. Our virtual sales, our inside sales for the smallest of clients under five employees that's really very popular now. People want to go on the web, search, talk to you, demo it online, and buy right away.
3: All right. So, Marty, let's just talk uh, generally. It looks like uh, we some people feel like full employment. Some people feel like labor shortage. Amazon raises prices of $15. What are you seeing? Because this seems like a pretty good time to be an employee.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think that you know what you're seeing is they have more choices. And that's why, as an employer, you've really got to make sure your benefit package are up are up very competitively, and uh, that you're offering develop, personal development and training to those employees to keep them. But it is a good time. You know, we're, not, we're still not seeing the biggest wage increases. Uh, this month, we're around 2.3% overall over last year. Still seems a little bit on the low side, but I do think larger employees are paying a little bit more. The smaller businesses... Not quite as profitable, not able to raise wages quite as much right now.
3: All right, how about the newfound competition? We, we meet with these people from Square, and they've got a very good suite of products, admittedly. But suddenly they're offering payroll processing. Yep. I mean, he, he, can anybody just offer, offer payroll processing and expect that they'll take share?
1: Uh, we really don't see it as that big of a competitor. Certainly they have good, good competitive products in the payment processing Business, but you know, on the payroll side, it's really not a full-featured payroll system. It doesn't handle all of the states. You have to pre-process your your payroll about four days ahead, based on the last that we've seen. Uh, it's not integrated with other HR products, and this was really a payroll product that they just moved to their mobile uh, mobile app, and uh, and it is only for employers. Our mobile app is for both employers and the employees, and there's a lot of self-service that they can do as well. So it's really not a big competition from our standpoint from a payroll, but they certainly have good pay, uh, payment processing products.
3: All right, finally, anecdotally, uh, I'm actually hearing, I just heard from another one this weekend, that people who uh, have spent time incarcerated, for white-collar crime, particularly for marijuana sales, are now able to get a job more easily than any time in history. Without being specific, are you seeing that kind of hiring going on?
1: Well, I think, you know, as as we may have talked before, what what our HRGs, you know, we have over 500 HR specialists that service our clients and help them with HR compliance. And we are definitely seeing smaller businesses, mid-sized businesses that are starting to even waive some of the drug uh, testing requirements because they are having so much difficulty getting certain employees. So you know you could have someone that becomes a little bit more lenient because it's so tight out there to hire employees. That's for sure.
3: Wow, that is the one of the uh, consequences of full employment. Uh, thank you so much, Marty Musi, He's yeah. the president CEO of Paychex. Yeah. Payx. Look, the, someone's going to go uh, hold in one of these uh, from hold to buy in one of these major firms. This stock's not done going up. It definitely isn't. Their money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for a brand new Dow Record Lightning Round, old man, buddy. That's right. Take the calls. Rapid fire. You, you say the name is time. Bye bye. And, the and, the and, the and, the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski down. For the lightning round, please. I'm going to start with Albert, New Jersey. Albert. Big booyah, Jim from Homedale in Monmouth County. Homedale, there often frequently. What's up? Uh. Anyway, just thank you to you and your staff, real quick. Um, also, uh, a couple of little parts. Uh, Kramer Fave, Lamb Research,
1: down over 19%. Yeah, remember, we did,
3: we did have to get negative on Lamb because we did feel that the group known as the uh, Flash and, um, and DRAMs got oversaturated. We're still not ready to call bottom. Let's go to Ken in
1: Florida. Ken. Yeah, this is Ken. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you, Ken? Great, great. Thank you and your staff for taking the call. Staff's great. Wanted- Wanted to check on uh, Proofpoint. Uh, okay, a lot of people feel it? that
3: Microsoft has gotten religion. Is really competing against Proofpoint. I think the price is right, Proofpoint. I pull the trigger. Let's go to uh, Levi in Montana. Levi. Jim. Hey, how you doing, man? I am doing well. How about you? Good. Uh, looking at PDCO Patterson Companies. What do you think? <clears throat> I do not like the dental business. I do not like it. And then so, I would so, say. So. I gotta tell you, I think that business is cutthroat and not a place to be. How about Bradley in Colorado, Bradley?
0: How you doing, Jim? Calling in about Noble Midstream Partners. MDL. I don't like this the midstream group. Country.
3: I think if you're going to be the midstream group, you're going to have to be paid more than five percent yield, which is all that one gives you. I'm going to say X Day, Mike in Wisconsin, Mike. Yeah, Jim. Enjoy your show. Thank See, you. I got a question on PayPal. Back in early August, I passed on Square. Where was that around 68 a share and PayPal was 89. I bought the PayPal. Today, uh, PayPal is uh, around 86 and Square is almost 100. Is yeah, that a b- comparisons a are obvious, as my mom PayPal would say. Now, I got to be- tell you, PayPal's been a great, great long-term winner. Uh, we can tell members of the Plus.com club that it was time to sell a little bit. We sold some in the 90s. Uh, I don't think it's worth selling the rest. Uh, Square is just what I can say. It's one of the great stories. I, Square is expensive. Uh, but Square is really good. And we had Sarah Fryer on, the CFO, and she told a great story. I think both are good. They are both fintech. Let's go to Reed in Connecticut. Reed. Hey, Jim. It's nice, it's nice to speak to you. How are you? Uh, good to speak to you, Reed. I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing great. Hey, um, yes, I'm talking about it, it, it's NCNX, Nutanix. I was just wondering what you thought. You know, what? When, you know, okay, I've Enterprise Cloud night- is under pressure right now. Uh, I Still, my favorite in this group is Salesforce. I feel best about that because we were just with them last week. CRM. I see all these stocks coming down. It's not necessarily the right moment to buy. Let them come in a little bit more. And then, buy, buy, buy. One more. How about Tom in New Jersey? Tom. Hi. Hey. How are you, Jim? I am good, Tom. How about you? Good.
2: Um, I'm calling about Cypress Semiconductor.
3: Yeah, this stock has fallen out of bed. I think it's kind of ridiculous. I think it's the level 14 after we just spoke with the company recently. I think it's just a plain out and out buy, and I think you should take some down at 14. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round.
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
3: I'm always telling you not to put too much faith in Wall Street research or any one expert, including yours truly. If you're serious about managing your own money, you need to be prepared to make your own decisions. The reason, because everybody gets it wrong sometimes. And when you're wrong, it is really helpful to know why you were wrong. You need to be able to identify where your assumptions were incorrect, and you can't do that if you base your whole decision on, well, I assume this other guy knew what the heck he was talking about. You want a textbook example? A little over three months ago, a highly respected retail analyst at UBS, his name is Jay Soule, rolled out coverage on nearly two dozen different stocks. I bring this up because Soule was surprisingly bearish on the whole retail cohort. In particular, Sol argued that the off-price retailers were in real trouble long-term. And so far, that it's not looking like that good a call. I'm not trying to give the guy a hard time. He's real smart. You see, everyone makes mistakes. Hey, look at me. I mean, I I thought that Stitch Fix would still be good. I liked it for a long time. It's today's disaster du jour. It was down 35%. I liked it too long. But now that it's been a few months and we've heard from all these retailers, I think it's worth explaining why Sol's been wrong, or at least why he's been early. So let's set the scene. What exactly was Sol's thesis on these off-pricers? And Junie came out with a major piece arguing that you need to pick retail stocks in the context of a world where more and more people are shopping online. No argument there. Then he goes on to explain that off-price chains like TJX and Burlington stores could be in trouble because they don't have enough of an online presence. They're still very much brick-and-mortar experiences. Now, I've been a big fan of the off-price change because they have a great business model. When department stores have too much inventory, companies like TJX and Burlington buy up what's left over for a pittance. And then they turn around, and sell it to their customers at a big markup that's nevertheless much less than you pay for the stuff anywhere else. That's how, say, TJ Maxx can give you better bargains than even Amazon. And it's why these off-price stocks have been such fabulous performers long term. But Sol and his team at UBS told us that the party's coming to an end. He sees growth slowing dramatically for these off-price chains, in part because of their lack of online distribution, and in part because they're running up against the law of large numbers. The bigger you get, the more new stores you need to put up to generate the same same growth. In fact, Sol says that the off-price business model is becoming, and I quote, antiquated. Now, this is a long-term call. He's not saying that TJX and Burlington and Ross are going to slow dramatically overnight. But he does think business will get more difficult over the next couple of years. Right now, these companies are being aided by the collapse of JCPenney. Hey, they just named a new CEO at last. And Sears, holy cows, that thing nothing. But eventually, they'll face more competent competition as better-run operators like Macy's, which actually broke down today, move into the off-price space. The coup de gras. Sol points out that if the off-price retailers merely continue to take the same amount of market share they've been taking, well, then they'll likely only grow at 3% clip when Wall Street expects something closer to 6%. The problem? Off-price already has 30% market share when you only look at brick-and-mortar stores. So he thinks it'll be difficult for them to keep expanding without much of a digital presence, and that's something they don't really have. To hit the consensus numbers, companies like TGX and Burlington will need to absolutely annihilate the department stores because there's only so much brick-and-mortar market share left to take. How about the treasure hunt model that makes these stores such attractive places to shop? As more and more apparel companies sell directly to the consumer, cutting out the middleman, Saul thinks that may may reduce the amount of high-quality merchandise that's available in off price stores. Plus, he figures that Amazon will eventually figure out a way to offer a similar experience online. That's why Saul slapped a sell rating on both Burlington and TJX in June. But at least so far as Cassandra-like predictions, they're not coming true. Burlington's had a rough couple of days, but it's still up 1.4% since then, and TGX is up 12%. You put a neutral on raw stores, it's up 11%. They were up much more, but you know retail's been having some troubles of late, in part because of the, uh, the issues involving Amazon raising the uh, employee pay. Now, most of that is, uh, is because when these companies reported their latest quarters, their numbers were fabulous. That's why I don't think that Sol's piece is going to be right. TGX saw its same-store sales increase by 6%, Wall Street was only looking for 2.1%. That translated into a 12-cent earnings beat off of the $1.05 cent basis. That's big. Business was great. Guidance was even better. What have all the strength? Booming customer traffic. CEO Ernie Herman explained that, and I quote, We have been attracting new customers to all of our divisions, a significant share of whom are younger customers. End quote. Pretty much every analyst loved this quarter except for J. Soul. Brolyton's stores delivered less impressive numbers, pretty much in line, same-store sales, because they were up against tough comparisons. But they still translated into a major earnings beat, up 51% year-over-year. Year. And the company raised their full-year guidance for the top and bottom line. Ross stores, 5% same-store sales growth. Wall Street was just wanting 2.7%. Uh, Along with a nice top and bottom line beat, a raised full-year guidance, and a gigantic buyback. Even better, Ross boosted their, same, their uh, store growth. They Look at this. They went from 2,500 to a total location of 3,000, meaning they think they can take a lot more market share than people were expecting. So where may Soul be going wrong? First of all, these off-price retailers aren't having any traffic problems at all. So far, the lack of serious online exposure doesn't seem to be hurting them one bit. And for now, the treasure hunt experience is clearly drawing in a lot of customers. Ever since the Great Recession, the consumers become more frugal. It's a secular trend, not a cyclical one that I think he just doesn't get. Remember what I said at the top of the show about secular versus cyclical. At the same time, all three companies are a heck of a lot more profitable than they used to be. And this is something Seoul mostly seems to ignore. Even if he's right about a slowdown in sales, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll get a slowdown in earnings, as the margins just keep going higher. Oh, and especially Burlington and Raw stores have used that extra cash to buy back oodles of stock, which also boosts their earnings per share. What about market share? All right, Maybe Sol is right that the off-price chains will hit their ceiling in North America by early 2021. Oh, but, but that still gives them two and a half years of turbocharged growth. And at least for now, all three companies are giddily putting up new stores at a rapid pace. They seem to believe they have plenty of room to expand. Who might have doubt them? At the end of the day, I think Seoul is painting with too broad a brush. Yes, in general, the web is conquering brick-and-mortar retail. And some outfits like Bed Bath & Beyond have been absolutely annihilated. Uh, but in some specific cases, physical stores still have an advantage, and this is one of them. Now, don't get me wrong. Jay Sol could very well prove to be right about these stocks longer term especially if labor costs go up dramatically like we just saw with Amazon. But, man, if you think Burlington and TJX are going to peak in two years, that doesn't mean you sell them right now. At best, he's very, very, very early with this call. And even if he's right, I think he'll stay early for at least another year. Bottom line, I'm asking you, please don't sell a stock because of some theoretical long-term worry that might, maybe, could be, play out over the next three years. The stock market is a shorter-term beast, typically six to nine months. And for now, TJX, Ross, and Burlington are doing very, very well. They've run a lot, but I'd be a buyer in any weakness here. year. predictions may ultimately be right, but they won't be relevant until the end of 2019 or maybe 2020 at the earliest, and that's way too out there to take profits now. Stick with Kramer. There was a lot of selling pressure in the cloud king and cloud prince stocks. I see this kind of thing as day one, usually lasts for three days. Don't be a hero. I would actually wait till the end of the week and let's see what that employment number has for us. The industrials are where people want to be right now. It could be lasting. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer and I'll see you tomorrow.